On today's episode, I interviewed Kurt Vogel, who is a USQ senior technical officer, as well as a physical performance coach. So Kurt has a lot of experience with the sports science side, as well as the strength and conditioning side, and he has a passion for kind of taking this sports science and being able to apply it. So first off, our main topics were just the different types of sports science data that he likes to use. So the first, we talked about RPEs, how easy that is to implement, how he uses it, and why he uses it. We then, we talked about force velocity profiling, what is it, and how he uses it, and why he uses it. And then we talked a little bit about accelerometers, how those are a newer thing, and they're starting to become used within the industry. The next part of this episode is more on testing and objectifying performance. So whether you're an athlete or strength and conditioning coach, Kurt kind of shares his way of why and how he likes to test athletes and monitor them to make sure they're continually showing improvement. We then also talk about different ways, different creative ways that you can objectify this performance when you don't have a lot of technology or really expensive equipment. Just other ways that you can do this that, again, is just, it's simple and it's, while it might not be the researched and super valid, it's still, it's a different way to, to work with when you don't have as many resources. So again, the first part of this podcast is really honing in on some specific different sports science stuff and how Kurt uses it. And then the second part's really just getting creative, how to monitor the, with the data, how he uses the data, and different ways to test when you don't have equipment. Great episode. Here it is. Welcome to No Week Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through your life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please... Have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome to No Week Links. I'm Patrick Wood, your host. And today I have on Kurt Vogel, who is a senior technical officer at USQ and also a physical performance coach with uh, plenty of experience in the industry. So today our main topic is just going to be a little bit about sports science, but also how to make that practical. So I guess first off, Kurt, appreciate you being on. If you first just want to kind of introduce yourself, tell a little bit about your background, uh, education, position, past position, and so on. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so really uh, good to be here. Nice Friday afternoon. So uh, I guess in regards to experience, it can uh, probably go on for a half an hour um, when, you're, when you're in the industry for so long, I guess. So uh, this is my 14th year in the industry. Uh, I've worked now at I think 27 different sports uh, purposefully, so there's a few that I, I stick with. Uh, um, currently, my biggest experience is within boxing uh, and rugby league. Uh, <clears throat> I've uh, done my undergrad in exercise science, postgrad in exercise science, uh, so I have a master's in exercise science. I also have a master's in business, specializing in uh, innovation and leadership. Uh, and I've actually started undertaking my research degree as well. So uh, on top of experience, I like to kind of back it up with a few different things. Uh, and across that, I've, I guess, done the qualification experience to uh, get my ASCA level three. Uh, I'm an elite uh, coach under the Professional Coaches Accreditation Scheme. Uh, and I was a level two sports scientist with ESSA as well, uh, but I didn't renew that because um, I didn't see it needing too much to do with what I do. 
Yeah. So that's definitely, you got, like I said, experience from multiple different things. So kind of combining all those is probably your specialty. And that's why we're going to get in kind of the um, current topic we're talking about. But I guess first, yeah, if you just want to elaborate a little bit on your current role. So what you do kind of with that senior technical officer, what is that? And what do you do there? And then kind of also you have your own little thing with your physical performance coach. So I want to talk about that as well. Yeah, cool. Uh, so my work as a senior technical officer at USQ is pretty much the person that uh, supports and maintains the equipment uh, within the sport and exercise science department. And through that, we have the academics, uh, the researchers, and students with anything they need. Uh, my role is a little bit unique compared to most other technical officers. Uh, I came in at the start of the program. So on top of this, I also get to conduct some research with the other academics. I also get to do a bit of teaching as well. So I teach within strength conditioning and functional anatomy. Uh, and then my own role in coaching uh, through uh, what I've named Revolve Athletic uh, covers whatever essentially a client needs uh, within athletics uh, or within the athletic realm. So currently I work with uh, rugby league, boxing, rowing, athletics, um, tennis, and at the moment, uh, ice hockey and football just for online pro uh, clients. So, and, okay. and that'll range from strength coach to strength conditioning coach to conditioning coach. So whatever kind of role is needed for that athlete or those teams. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, it'll kind of lead good into the next question with being able to, again, take that research and turn it into more practical application. So I guess just uh, maybe first talk a little bit about kind of the process you go about when you kind of have that research side and taking in the information and getting the information, but then kind of um, how you go about saying this is applicable, this is not, and I guess what are your main uh, thought points upon that? It, it, it is such a broad question, so uh, and everyone has a different way to do things. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess like most people, you uh, I guess most people in this field, you kind of look up any journals online that you can, um, read from textbooks, read outside of your own industry, and that's one thing I'm big on is reading outside of my industry. Uh, I feel you get a lot of value from that because you tend to get a lot of repetition within your own industry. Um, and then coming to my own research, uh, most of my own research has um, been conducted within ballet. Um, strangely enough, I'm not a dancer. I don't have a history in ballet, um, yet I ended up in that area. And uh, my future research will uh, be involved with rugby league, uh, female rugby league athletes and the menstrual cycle. So. Um, <clears throat> in regards to kind of any research that I've conducted myself in the past, uh, I guess there's so many things uh, to go about how you'd apply that research because you can't just cherry pick information um, and what you have. That's uh, why you can't really do research on your own because having your own biases can easily be shown up in your own research. So having people alongside you uh, to research and uh, with ballet, I had one other person, but uh, through the process, we consulted with about five or six different people to make sure we weren't just seeing our own side. Uh, so I think the biggest uh, part of applying what you find is actually talking to other people about it too. And rather than just going, okay, here's what I've found, I think I can apply this, uh, talk to other people in your own field and going, hey, I found this information, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, have you used this before? So, uh, and that's when I guess mentorship comes into the process. So having a mentor to support you along the way in that respect, uh, and or, or even 
uh, I guess, colleagues that are close that you can talk to people about, uh, talk to talk about topics about. Sorry, so. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, so whether you're an athlete or some um, sort of profession within the field, uh, you're saying whatever you read in general, uh, you're gonna want to make sure you talk to people about it and make sure it's actually you know you're able to apply it, because um, you know some things even though it's um, it might be quote unquote good research, it's just not really practical and able to kind of put into action. Absolutely, and particularly with your own philosophies, we tend to have these biases when we look at research or conduct it, where we see that might fit with our narrative. Having a person outside look at it and go, well, there's these issues within that research highlights a, a kind of different aspect to it. Yep. Do you have any, I guess, just general advice for, like I said, athletes or practitioners in sifting through that information and trying to identify, you know, because everyone's, you know, going to try and look for things that will help them improve themselves or help them improve others. Do you have any general um, advice when going through that of, you know, do this to get the, uh, actual valid and most relevant research? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, don't just read an abstract or conclusion. Um, you can get an I- idea of uh, the research in that area um, or don't just read a textbook. Be highly critical of the information. So when you actually look at uh, a paper, go into the actual methods they used um, and look at the limitations within the paper as well. Uh, and on top of that, um, making sure you found more than just a single source. Yeah, because okay. a single source, any research can kind of combat other research if there's just one paper with it. Yeah, so. definitely. Uh, I guess we'll kind of go into. So, what are what would you say the biggest um, uh, things you use sports science wise, or for monitoring uh, or training athletes at the moment or in the past? What have you I guess kind of used most that you found beneficial? Uh, what I use most uh, is just really easy sessional RPE. Uh, so. I guess I've used a bunch of different things from uh, GPS monitoring to accelerometer uh, monitoring. Um, currently using a smarter base with a rugby league team I've worked with, uh, but also using Inspire Sport Online as well. Uh, and looking across all these uh, different types of platforms, I found Sessional RPE is just the easiest to uh, work with, particularly if you're working with a team with a lack of resources. So going from uh, if you expect a certain amount of um, resources and then going back to a team that has zero resources, you can always come back to sessional RPE. Uh, and so that's what, that's what I tend to use the most because I find if you use it the most, you'll tend to have a better process to be able to use it. Yeah, so that's definitely that's what you say that your biggest, I guess, monitoring-wise one that you'd use? Yeah, absolutely, yep. Do you have, uh, well, I guess, what are your kind of general, um, you know, cutoffs or guidelines upon, you know, this is this is usually a little too much or and then kind of how often do you implement people going through those questionnaires with sessional RPEs at every time? Is it a couple times a week? Yeah, so it changes uh, depending on the sport. Uh, some sports, I just don't deal with the athlete enough. So I pretty much rely on how they're feeling because sometimes you don't even get a coach's program. You just have to be blind to uh, what <laughs> they're actually doing until you actually talk to the athlete themselves. Uh, so some I don't use at all. Uh, those that are more consistent, it's actually being able to, uh, I guess, flag if a result has become negative across a few days. So rather than just seeing a single negative result, if it is continuous for at least three days in a negative fashion, then that's where I actually approach the athlete. Rather than saying there's a definitive cutoff, I actually have a chat with the athlete and go, hey, what's going on? And 
Like we've had a case um, where uh, tracking this kind of data, you see this person actually had poor sleep like three days in a row um, post game. I had a chat with him and just just asked what's going on. He goes, I've just had a kid, so I, I just don't get sleep. I was like, fair point. I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah you, don't, you can't advise him not to have a kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, we had, had one girl that um, reported all these poor measures and I spoke to her about it. She goes, oh, sorry, I thought that was the best end of the RPE. So I'm actually feeling great. All right. So I think after looking at your data, rather than having a specific cutoff, is just chatting to the athlete to see what's going on with them because they'll have a bit more information than just a piece of uh, information in front of you on a sheet. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at these trends and you kind of see the trends, you're not, again, you're not looking at that one specific you know, data point, uh, what are th some things from a strength conditioning standpoint that you do either to, let's say their RP is a lot lower than you wanted to. Um, is there anything specific you do other than just up the general intensity of the program or let's say the, the RP is too high for what you wanted other than kind of having a chat and identifying those things that are outside of strength and conditioning. Do you have anything that you try to incorporate to make sure you reduce that to get them back down to a normal or I guess where you're wanting them at in the moment in training? Uh, we're going to a bit of a... Uh, education about uh, sleep and nutrition uh, a lot so it's the biggest things we kind of come back to because when uh, the athletes tend to be in that region they're either not getting enough sleep or they're eating poorly um, to not very often is an actual training issue um, I don't know that that can sound very biased on my behalf but um, but when they talk about their training and, and look at how much they're actually doing it's not really too much compared to the lack of sleep or the poor nutrition they're actually getting. So it becomes more of an education issue rather than tapering or tailing sessions. Uh, and in the cases where we have had to do that, um, and sorry, I say we because of, as a team, I guess, in a bunch of team situations, uh, mm -hmm. we just say, we just want you to go easier tonight. So say if it's a speed session, we go, um, all right, so what for any kind of speed work we're doing tonight, you're at 80%. So when I say go, you don't go any harder than 80%. As simple as that. And they go, okay, done. Simple. So we just keep it really simple for them to follow rather than having to stick to numbers or anything. It's just you go at a lower percentage. Yep. And then assuming relatively similar for the other one, you're just going to have them try to up, just increase intensity a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point of uh, it's pretty much, yeah, because if you're programming correctly, you know, you'd hope they're not going to go, you know, to you where they're too broken down, I guess. So, yeah. Out, so yeah, that's a good point of identifying those factors that are out, out of uh, your control that would probably be making the biggest um, issues on these. So from more of the monitoring standpoint is the RP, the sessional RP, is there anything else that you use that you find relatively beneficial um, that's not, I guess, too complex? Um, in the past, I've used velocity-based training quite a bit, particularly with uh, boxes. So I use GymAware for probably about six to seven years uh, with those boxes uh, to make sure they actually get the most bang, out of, um, bang for the buck out of training. And that's kind of where I developed a lot of uh, information around force velocity profiling and, and actually looking at uh, what is the best way for a boxer to train uh, for, I guess, under the boxing shop that I was work, that I still do work with actually. Um, and with that kind of profiling, identifying where the law of diminishing returns kind of kicks in, in regards to too much strength work uh, and changing over to more velocity work, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, do you want to just kind of maybe go over a little bit on the, like, what is a forest velocity curve, how you measured it, and how you used it to program? Yeah, uh, so uh, pretty much force velocity curve is basically the relationship between force and velocity. So the lower a velocity, the higher the force, and the lower the force, the higher velocity uh, in theory. Uh, <laughs> now, when looking at a force velocity profile, it's pretty much having a, a specific exercise that you can undertake, and you work your way through different weight scales to try and get that curve. So it's not just as simple as going, here's a back squat, here's a jump squat, because one has a deceleration phase and the other doesn't. So it's actually, uh, in, in some people say differently, they'll use a power exercise and a strength exercise, but uh, for me, I'll actually use a counter movement jump with body weight and then progress up 20, 40, 60 kilos, depending on how strong I've seen them previously, and then work off that. And then you can actually get a bit of a graph from uh, those profiles uh, and it's never as the graph shows in textbooks so in a textbook it's this nice kind of curve uh, half parabola and it re realistically it's more of a linear curve and this, if you took a snapshot and, and expanded it it would be this nice curve but it's not really how it works in real life yeah would how do you uh, I guess use that to progress the athlete towards their goals and what are you I guess looking at um, when trying to achieve this yeah so uh, basically it d depends on the sport in regards to what we're working on because some sports say a rugby league sport velocity isn't the be-all and end-all particularly in the gym uh, but the power usually is so uh, depending on the exercise uh, in textbooks it says 30 percent but depending on the exercise it could be 50 percent 60 percent so what you look for is power measurement in some sports or speed measurement in others. But how to utilize it best is when I get the strength measurement and the velocity measurement and look across the chart, where is the weakest part of that measurement and where do we actually want to uh, move that forward? And some of that data you can get from research, uh, some of it you can't. So some of you kind of have to be a bit blinded and guess with a lot of that uh, from what you know of other sports. So mm -hmm. uh, initially when I was working in boxing, I just wanted to see what we got from different types of measurements. Uh, and nowadays I can kind of be able to pick what we're kind of looking at in different movements. Um, and there's a lot of research now, uh, particularly, particularly a lot of it was done by Dan Baker in the past with rugby league, but it still correlates pretty strongly to other sports and, and what you're looking for uh, for specific movements too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so there's not necessarily, it's really dependent on the sport. So the curve Absolutely. or linear line, whatever one it is, um, yeah. it's going to be, when you test that, you're going to want to make sure you look in the research to try and figure out what is technically best for the sport. Um, yeah. But, and then kind of make, give your best guess. Do you have anything that you've kind of picked up over the years of your experience with it on um, kind of what the best either numbers are or just in general to look for um, well, when, for the best athlete? I think, uh, so a few things, um, one is don't just look at the numbers as a uh, comparison of ratio because I see too many times people go, oh wow, their, uh, their velocity and force is really balanced. Uh, but if you look at it in general, their velocity and force is just low in general. Um, so it's not just about ratios either. It's actually having an identifier of going, this is high, this is low, um, certain ways uh, in regards to that. So. What I uh, generally look for 
um, in uh, a counter movement jump is uh, anything above uh, 1.4 meters a second um, with body weight to begin with. So this is a, a beginner, um, what I'm working with, uh, because they need to be able to project that force quickly. Um, the same goes for uh, any type of counter movement throw um, with a uh, just a bar. So generally Smith machine bar will vary between gyms. But mm-hmm. uh, generally they're anywhere between 10 and 20 kilos. And what I want to see is a really decent number from that as well. This is in boxes, sorry, that um, I'm talking about. And so it'll progress from there. So once the counter movement jump, uh, they are strong enough, you'll see uh, numbers up towards 1.8 to 2 meters a second, uh, which is quite fast, but that's just with uh, their body weight from there. So uh, <clears throat> it depends on, I guess, who the athlete is, how much experience they have. I've had athletes that come in with without training for two years and they are just incredible freak athletes and now will be able to produce mm-hmm. these high uh, velocity numbers straight off the bat. Yeah, so it's, it's dependent on the athlete's, I guess, genetic makeup and talent as well. Absolutely. On who's able to kind of produce these numbers. Absolutely. So how how in, often, I say, would you use um, your kind of force velocity curve at the moment now? Um, is it something you use quite frequently or is it more of just super specialized? Um, I don't use it too much anymore in regards to specific numbers. Um, having worked with it for a while, I kind of get a good feel for the look of their movement. So if, if I can actually take away the time to prep everything, if I'm working with a team of uh, uh, say 20 people, it's different than working with an individual athlete. An individual athlete, I'm happy to still use gym wear, um, but if it's a team, having the time to set up everything uh, and when you only got a short period of time is pretty much uh, useless because you're gonna take way too much time from the session. So I look at yeah. how, they, how fast they move and the intent behind the movement. And mm-hmm. the more you're in coaching, the more you kind of understand that intent behind the movement as well. So you can actually see it and, uh, and identify whether it's a slow movement, whether it's a fast movement, and particularly from the eccentric to concentric phase, if there's a delay or not. And that's kind of one of the things I, I do focus a little bit is on that delay between eccentric and concentric phase if it's meant to be fast. So you want to okay. make sure there's a, as little delay as possible. Okay. When, when you have, uh, so let's say someone doesn't have this equipment, you know, to measure the, the velocity, mm-hmm. do you have anything other than just looking at it visually um, that, you, that you helped use to kind of monitor this, whether you're a coach or an athlete? I, I've heard some, you can tell me your opinion on this, that will do kind of um, reps in a certain time. So if you can't hit this amount of reps in a, these many seconds, yep. then, then that's not hitting the stimulus you want. Do you... Do you, have you heard or have any recommendations upon that for people that don't have access to something to monitor? Yeah, uh, so um, that's not a bad way to do it. However, sometimes you don't want to rush that movement um, in regards to the eccentric phase and you're looking at concentric only, right? So yep. um, using apps uh, such as, oh, I think, so for jumps, you've got my jump. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's another one. Um, I'm trying to think of the one that uses barbell at the moment, but there's other ones like Bar Sensei and stuff like that. So you can actually monitor bar path using an app uh, just on your phone. So even if you don't have resources, I don't really know many coaches that don't have a smartphone nowadays. And so even even athletes that don't have a smartphone. So just whipping out your phone and uh, checking on that app 
and then bang, you've got some sort of data. It's, it may not be as accurate as something like Jimware uh, or mm -hmm. uh, push bands, but you've got some sort of data in that respect. Uh, and depending on the machine, you've, you can use some other uh, methods. So uh, you won't get an exact measure out of it, but if you're using something like a Smith machine or leg press machine, you can actually measure uh, targets and draw with a marker where that bar gets to. Um, so if it gets below the line, you cut off from your reps and then uh, rest from there. So it really depends on what machines you're working with too. Yeah, and I, yeah, I have the my jump. There's also like my my sprint now or my something sprint. that you can yeah. use. Yeah, for the, the velocity um, profiling on that. Yeah. Uh, do you have any? Uh, I guess variation or difference on the sprint versus just like a general counter movement jump profiling. Uh, no, not not really. I, I use a, a five, ten, twenty meter sprint uh, for uh, most of my uh, athletes that sprint. But if they're actually a track, then I don't need to worry about a five meter. Um, we're looking more at the longer distance, so the ten, twenty, and forty. So that way you've got a difference between the um, initial power to acceleration to top speed uh, and then you just want to look at the variations there uh, so there's so many things you can look at in regards to the speed variables uh, I like to look at the difference between 505s and uh, their 10 20 meter sprints so you can kind of get some sort of uh, change of direction deficit which is I guess kind of became popularized by uh, Sophia Nymphius so uh, so with speed work it's a bunch of different things that you could talk about mm-hmm so other than the sessional RP and your force velocity profiling, is there anything that you've used in the past or use now that you find uh, beneficial for either again the athletic performance or monitoring? Are those kind of your main two? Um, they're my main two I use more often. Uh, however, using uh, accelerometry um, has been uh, an interesting journey. Uh, so that's where I kind of started with ballet um, in accelerometry. Uh, it's kind of a bit of a strange occurrence how I, uh, I met them and then I uh, just asked if I can come down to have a look what they do because the dancers hadn't even put on a heart rate monitor before. So um, myself and the assistant uh, physio there kind of went on a bit of a journey to go, okay, how can we look at load in ballet dancers? You can't use GPS because they do everything vertically, uh, well, most things vertically. Um, the jump mats before and after, they don't warm up enough, so they actually had... Uh, higher jumps post-session rather than lower jumps. Um, you'd usually expect the other way around. Uh, so they just didn't warm up enough. Uh, so we couldn't use that as a good measure. And so uh, we looked at accelerometry. And so, um, and for those that don't know, pretty much it's like in your watch or in your phone, you have uh, an accelerometer with a gyroscope, which means it detects how fast uh, you will accelerate, um, both in... Uh, meters per second for uh, your X, Y, and Z, or for a gyroscope, degrees per second around those axes as well. And so in ballet, we looked at that, uh, identifying all the movements, and so you could actually see how many jumps, rotations, speed rotation they had, and you could also see if they're on left leg or right leg. Uh, so that was a really interesting to look at for all that data. Um, and it's taken off a little bit overseas. They've started to use accelerometry in uh, ballet a bit more, which is great. Um, and it's really good to look at uh, post rehab so you can actually identify um, whether you've got uh, a big imbalance in the hip uh, when you're looking at particular movements 
uh, in ballet. So if they've had a hip impingement, uh, they're likely to stand um, at a higher angle or pelvis angle uh, laterally than uh, on one leg than the other, which may be more stable. Mm, okay. What is, is that used in any other sports or is it mainly just ballet at the moment? Uh, so volleyball, uh, figure skating, um, uh, diving. So accelerometry gets used quite a bit here and there and most people kind of don't realize it's used even in the GPS systems uh, by catapult a bit here and there. So uh, when you look at the collisions they have in, in contact sports with GPS data, that's coming from the accelerometer. It just depends on how it gets used. Uh, there was one student um, uh, at USQ who was looking at the accelerometry through catapult GPS in handball throwing. So seeing if you could detect it through the rotation of the shoulder, um, purely by having it at the, um, uh, roughly at the C7, uh, T1 junction. So it depends on how you're gonna use it. So it gets used in a lot of sports, but predominantly the vertical jumping sports that it gets used most in. Um, and that means stuff like figure skating, diving, uh, ballet. Okay. And what if uh, you or in general has it been used to, I guess, kind of monitor for the benefits of exactly? Uh, sorry, what was that question again? So, like, what, what, uh, with your your research or in general, kind of how, what is the, I guess, main benefit uh, that it's kind of used for? Okay, so you can get uh, pretty much. Uh, uh, external training load from it. So you can get not just say how many jumps uh, someone has done through a session, but the intensity of those jumps as well. And if those jumps were uh, landing or on their right or left leg, if it was a single jump uh, or uh, using both legs at the same time, so you can detect that. Uh, the other thing is you can detect rotation speed. Uh, so when you look at rotation speed, it's a big indicator of uh, potential ankle or knee injuries. Um, if you're coming down to the ground quicker as well. So looking at that data will give you a really good uh, identifier instead of just sessional RPE, it's just like looking at running meters for a GPS data, using the same thing for a, a vertical dominant sport where you're getting a, a number of jumps and the intensity of the number of jumps. Okay, so kind of like a load monitoring and then Absolutely. Um, main to use it for performance at all or mainly just kind of seeing well, for different injuries and things. Well, in, in, in ballet, it's a bit of an interesting one because it's all about uh, the artistic aspect. So they can't really wear it during a performance, uh, particularly if they don't have uh, any top on for their performance. So they uh, will use it mainly in their training. And yep. it's because ballet is a bit of an interesting one. Like with other sports or outside of the artistic realm, it's you plan all your training and you've got an unanticipated uh, performance realm. Whereas ballet, it's the opposite way around, you actually don't know what's going on in training and then you exactly know what's going on at the end. So it's in, in reverse. So it's a good way to monitor when you have no idea what the schedule's like. Yeah, okay. That's, yeah, good point. It is quite different than the opposite of it, hey? Absolutely. Um, so I guess just with all this, like I said, talking about the sports science and all the um, research and information, you said you've kind of I guess not gotten away from uh, and kind of gone probably more of a practical route, would you say? Mm. You kind of want to talk a little bit about um, kind of that journey from that transition, kind of why you've done that and then what you, where you're at now? Yeah, uh, so I kind of got into the sports science realm quite a bit. Uh, I really enjoy that, uh, that work. Um, I, I love numbers, so 
uh, for me that's really exciting um, but I guess the more I worked in coaching uh, the less I saw the numbers mattered uh, when you're actually talking to and dealing with the athletes all the time um, the other thing that I noticed is anyone in development has a hard time being able to access those kind of numbers so until something becomes more effective for uh, developing athletes then you've got to try and find a way around bringing that elite uh, I guess knowledge back to developing athletes and that's why I've kind of gone more of a practical route is how do you best utilize uh, elite practices with those in developing sports or developing athletes uh, so I try and use that data um, or I guess the way the data gets produced in the same way at a low level. So um, without a force plate, as an example, um, uh, you see, uh, I guess athletes use uh, your shoulder test when you're pushing against a force plate in different angles. Uh, if you don't have that kind of information, then how do you go about it? And you can do something like a, literally a seated single arm uh, shot put throw. I mean, so it's, it's finding a different way about uh, undertaking the testing. Um, and it's not all uh, going to be as accurate, but it gives you a still a decent measure uh, for developing athletes. And if you can do that, then why not? You can give them something rather than just going into training blindly. And that's kind of what mm. kind of drove me down that route a bit is the lack of resources uh, developing athletes have. Yeah, so you're saying it is, uh, in your opinion, it's super important to know all the stuff we, talk, we talked about beforehand yeah. and know... Um, the importance of it, how to use it, and so on, and then finding ways to get creative on your own to somehow replicate that as much as you can to then use slightly di different objective data that you just don't have the resources for to try to improve upon the athletes. Ab absolutely right. And particularly in, in this field, you, you could know you can get, uh, uh, say, a team you, you get all the resources in the world with, and the next team you work with, you've got nothing. So, <laughs> yeah, so how are you going to adapt to that kind of environment? Yeah, I like the like I said the shoulder example you used. Do you have any other other type of examples or things that you've come up with that you found beneficial in different ways to monitoring uh, different performance aspects with not as much equipment as everyone would have? Yeah, so um, one thing you can still always use is speed testing um, just over a short distance. Uh, even though it's hand timed, it gives you some indication. Uh, in regards to something more specific, uh, I like to use a... Uh, a broad jump so use a single broad jump or you can or a single leg hop depends which way you want to go about it uh, as the strength measure and then you continually perform repetitive actions so we use single leg hop, leg hop as an example so one single leg hop right leg to right leg is the strength uh, uh, movement and then to see uh, if it's if you're more strength dominant or more elastic dominant then you do repetitive actions. So three continuous or five continuous jumps. And then you can see a comparison or a ratio versus your strength dominant um, movement to see if there's difference. So say if someone jumped two meters on a single leg, but their three jumps were less than six meters, they're a strength dominant athlete. But if they could jump two meters and their three jumps were seven meters, they have the capability to use their tendons a lot better than someone that would have that lower number or less than their strength value. So it shows they can actually produce more force after a repetitive movement. 
So that, yeah. that's a that's a good example arc to use. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely makes sense. Do you have any for either upper body or any other examples of those? Because like I said, I think that's super beneficial for people to know different ways to do this without the equipment. Uh, it, it becomes a little bit harder with upper body. Um, there's limited tests you can do because of uh, the weakness in the athletes. So uh, a lot of the times I'll just use a, uh, a throwing test. So I like either two-handed med ball, but you're sitting against the wall, or a seated single arm um, shot put throw. Uh, again, both at light weight, so only uh, two to three kilograms. Um, and with the pulling one, uh, it, you become a bit lacking in that respect. So you can do a seated uh, single arm sled pull. Um, I've only used it once before, but what you get is if you're seated, again, you take out the leg use and all you get is one handle. You just have to pull as hard as you can and you get a distance of where that sled was to where it is now. <clears throat> Okay, so like I said, you worked with you've worked with many different sports, and so I have a lot of experience with different ones. Maybe we could talk about a little bit about the different testing that you used for like performance indicators for different, I guess, kind of clusters, tough sports, so field-based sports, your aquatic sports, and throwing sports, or so on. Of ones that you find that um, you like to use to kind of develop or um, compare their performance from uh, before and after your training. Yeah, um, so I guess over, over time I've kind of started to, like I initially went all different ways about it and then I, in regards to initial performance testing, I keep a few of the same measures and then adjust it to the specific sport related to the epidemiology of that. Uh, so if they have shoulder injuries, etc. So if it's a cyclist, I don't worry about doing a, um, a maximum bench test com- comparatively to a pull-up. It's just part of the program, but I don't worry about strength testing that. Um, But say, if we're gonna look at uh, a couple different sports, we'll look at, uh, say, rowing, um, for one example, and I'm trying to think of a completely different one. Um, We might as well just use uh, rowing and boxing. One is a pull sport, one is a push sport, completely dominant push, and one is completely dominant kind of pull. with rowing, I'll keep it really simple. Uh, I don't really worry about any type of single leg testing uh, because, or single arm testing because uh, they are holding uh, an oar with two hands. Even if they are um, performing uh, in a team event or like a double or a, um, or a quad or something like that where they may actually only stroke to one side compared to sculling where you're using an oar in single hands. Uh, either way, I'd use uh, just a standard bench pull. And I don't use a one RM, I use a, a five RM for uh, rowing uh, because the amount of endurance work they do, what I've found is their one RM relative to their five RM does not stick with the standards of uh, what we found in the data. So I can actually have a, a rower work at 90%, um, three reps, and then have a 15 second rest and repeat that for 10 sets on only 30 seconds rest, 15 seconds rest. Whereas another athlete, 90%, three reps, 30 seconds later, they're not having a chance to even <laughs> pull that again or push that again. Um, so I keep it really simple with uh, with rowing. So um, sorry for the expansive uh, explanation here, but with rowing, uh, uh, bench pull, uh, deadlift, uh, back squat, uh, power clean, 
and I don't worry about comparing bench press, um, but I put bench press in the training. So the reason why I use uh, something like a power clean is because the actual uh, force uh, pattern of a power clean is the exact same force pattern against a plate on a rowing boat. So when you actually see the force pattern, it is uh, not even similar, it is exactly the same. Um, so it makes a big difference. Uh, mm -hmm. Then if we look at something like boxing, uh, what I look at is uh, their actual um, squat. I still look at their squat, although I don't use them much in training. Um, then I look at their counter movement jumps. So I actually get an elastic value out of that. Uh, then I look at their bench press and bench throw. Uh, and then I actually look at single arm seated throws as well, um, purely as a uh, measure of single sided aspects. Um, okay. And again, I don't look at a pulling to comparison, but what I do is I still add that work into their training. Yeah, okay. So you, you try to make the functional test obviously as close to what they want to do as possible. Yeah. Um, and then the other things you're still going to put the program in. Do you, do you have, so like field-based sports, I'd say are probably the most similar group of sports. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, uh, like a gen some general tests you like to include for those, those type of sports? Uh, yeah, I, I just really stick to the basics on that. I, I just love the big four. Uh, big four being the back squat, deadlift, bench, and pull. Um, you get a real good comparison between numbers, uh, depending on the athlete, depending if you include it in the program. But those four exercises are really good standards across uh, any kind of team sport, uh, regardless of what they're doing. Um, just to get a, get a good indication of their strength. Okay. What about uh, any any other aspects with kind of in power endurance, or kind of just like conditioning type testing that you'll do with those general field based sports? Yeah. So uh, oh yeah. Sorry, I was just talking about the gym too much in regards to um, <laughs> yeah, <no problem. laughs> uh, I, uh, with the speed speed aspects. I I do like to keep it a twenty meter speed test, um, a um, and a MAS test. And with the MAS test, I just do a five minute run. Um, so it can. I can use the data from all sports um, and compare between sports if I want to, um, but pretty much everyone will get a five minute continuous run from me. Uh, I find it's not too long, but it's not too short that you get a really good MAS value out of it. Um, and comparing that to their speed gives you a really good uh, anaerobic speed reserve number where you can actually identify where the weaknesses are. Okay. Uh. How, how, um often do you test I guess these different things I know it's probably it's going to depend a lot on season and so on but do you have a general kind of when you test you know your conditioning your speed and your strength type testing uh, usually uh, if I have enough time over that those blocks it'll be uh, roughly every four to six weeks so I don't like to do anything less than four weeks uh, because you don't see a significant change um, Unless it's something like uh, body weight, then depending on what you're looking at in regards to body weight, you can actually uh, look at that weekly. Um, I know it depends on who you talk to in regards to if you should do that or not. I like to say if someone is actually looking to control their weight more, you need to look at it at least weekly, um, if not more than that. Yep. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, every four to six weeks uh, with strength testing, um, I don't do too much of that because you get to see it along the way. So in the in the actual program, I'll prescribe. Here's your uh, week one, or like your week of one RMs at ten RPE. So it's a max out, and then next week we go easy again. Um, okay. 
and then for the speed stuff we'll actually do a proper here's your speed block it's testing so you get a, it's an easy week and you just get to do three tests and that's it so it's really simple okay do you so do you have a general way you would do it so you when you have if you're testing speed power endurance wise um, if you are, you probably don't test them all, all, always at the same time or the same week with just how sports go. But if you were, do you have a general plan on how you'd set that up, I guess? And then do you have a deload the week beforehand? Or is it um, just depending on how it's, and it's, it's going to be hard, I said, with the season. But yeah. um, with, if you want to keep progressing with them, you wouldn't deload a crazy amount, if that makes sense. No, yeah. So, uh Pretty much uh, what I'll do is speed testing is actually in the easy week. Um, the reason being is because it's such a low volume of it, although it's high intensity. Okay. So it becomes a nearly like a um, peaking week to a certain extent. Um, and with the strength testing, I put that uh, at their high week of RPE that it's meant to be. So they end up getting a low volume and a high intensity out of it. And then the, uh, the, the week following, they'll get a deload for the strength but for the speed, the following week, they'll go back to uh, a higher uh, RPE. So, and I usually like to um, keep the speed and strength off by about a week. So the deload post strength is generally the week I test speed in. Um, and uh, strength is the week before I do the speed testing. Okay. Yeah, so just making sure you, again, periodize the, the testing as well as yeah. your general um, program pretty much yeah do you have do you have uh, again this is, this is probably hard with each athlete being different but do you have kind of a general numbers you're looking for for upon improvement for let's say a, a seasoned athlete that's you know relatively um, decent level um, or is it just pretty much just you want to see improvement obviously but <laughs> as much as possible <laughs> if, they're, if they're a seasoned athlete uh, any improvement is improvement the, the one thing yeah have to be aware of particularly in speed is uh if they get older um the speed is probably not going to come down so the, the closer we can keep that max speed at the same value then the better it is um but i've been fortunate enough to have like deal with some athletes that are over 30 years of age and they actually uh improve in their speed after like a block of training which i get excited about and i don't think it's necessarily a strength or speed issue i think it's more of a uh, biomechanical issue where I include a lot of basic kind of speed drills plus speed training um, in what I do so they're just better technically to be able to produce force off the ground okay when so let's say when this athlete uh, if they do the if they do the testing and they don't progress or don't get better uh, I guess how do you kind of approach that or deal with that if um, do you find a, po- a lot of times they're down on themselves or um, yeah, I guess I guess how you, how do you deal with that to make sure they you know they're not they're not too down and they keep going and progressing well. So uh, again, we start with having a chat to see what's happened um, and what they're doing. Um, and generally, it's either they have been inconsistent with their training. Uh, so we end up having a chat about the fact that if you're obviously not doing everything, then you're not likely to get any results out of it. Um, or it comes to a sleep nutrition thing again. So. Um, a lot of the people that I work with have a pretty good trust in me when we have a conversation about it all and and even uh, so an example uh, a couple of days ago um, the role that I worked with um, she produced a uh, I guess for rowing circumstances a much slower time than a previous one 
Uh, but in the four weeks around that, she changed her boat, which was a seat which wasn't good for her. So she was out for a week with injury, um, purely because it was pressing up on her uh, piriformis, which means she couldn't actually do much there. And then because of that, that locked up her QLs, which means she couldn't do strength training. So she did about a week and a half of training in four weeks. And she got really stressed initially. And I said, you got to really look at it. You've only dropped a second um, per kilometer over 30 minutes. Uh, and you've only trained for like a week and a half in four weeks. Like that's pretty good. And so yeah. even just having that chat to bring it back to that, like that was still faster than an original 30 minutes um, six months ago. So she's like, well, you know, I guess it's, it's pretty good without much training. So yeah, it's yeah. just finding a different perspective on it. And that's generally what I, what I do with the athletes is just see what perspective it is. If it is really just a, an issue where, look, you've decreased, I might go, well, I, I can't see any reason for why you've actually decreased if everything's going well. Like it could have just been a, a bad run. It could have just been a bad test. Like we all have those days. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, that's kind of where we build up again and go, let's just focus on moving forward from here. Don't rely on that data to say how fast you are because you know you can compete well. You know you can actually yeah. um, like play your sport. And so a lot of the people I work with don't get too down on it when we have that chat. Yeah, so yeah, making sure you kind of figure out what the reason, if there is a reason, mm. as to why I didn't perform, and then if they're, you know, if they didn't perform well in the data, then it's also not they're not it's not their sport. So yeah. you know, it's just kind of putting that in perspective. Yeah, I guess what would you say your main I guess messages are and takeaways? Kind of talking about you know sports science and measuring um, you know your performance. Main takeaways from the episode or. Um, main takeaways you want athletes and coaches to know yeah so in regards to dealing with sports science data uh, work with something that's not going to take too much time away from what you do as an actual coach because you want to be able to put enough effort towards the athletes uh, they see if you're putting too much effort towards something else uh, and they can see when it's going or moving away from them so whatever you're doing don't try and put too much effort into the resolution just to get a number whereas you can put a lot of effort into the actual athlete and get a better outcome so it's just finding the balance between what that is okay awesome yeah thank you very much for being on Kurt appreciate all the information um, if you want to share where people could follow you uh, outside of this as I know you share the in uh, information on Instagram and so on and then you also have your own um, website so if you want to say those and I'll put those in the show notes for other people where they can contact you yeah, no problem. Well, I think, thanks for having me on, first of all. So I know some of my answers seem pretty uh, uh, ambiguous because you work across multiple sports. You don't get a here's an exact answer here or exact answer there. But um, hopefully some people can gain some sort of insight from today. Yeah, um, no, definitely. I think I think it was, like I said, my main questions were open um, and I, it was good just to kind of hear your thought process on things. So appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. And so uh, people can find me either on Instagram, uh, which is kurtvogel.coach, uh, I also have another one which is at Revolve Athletic uh, and uh, you can find me on the website at www.revolveathletic.com uh, and that's probably as simple as it is. I do have a Twitter and LinkedIn but I don't use them much so you'll probably be able to find me by association somewhere around there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Kurt, for being on again. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to No Weak Links. If you've enjoyed the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. 
I also provide free strength and conditioning and injury and rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on Facebook at Coach Patrick Wood, on Twitter at Coach Patty Wood, and on my website www.patrick-wood.com. All of this can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening.